You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business, I have a very special guest, and I know I say that every week, but this week, Mario Gabelli is our guest, and he is just tremendous. He is known as a stock picker's stock picker, a, a, a deep value guy schooled at Columbia in the Graham and Dodd tradition, the Warren Buffett tradition of value investing. Uh, I think the twist that Mario brings is that he learns an industry as well as anybody ever can, and then within that industry goes hunting for value. Uh, he's also a force of nature, as you'll hear. I very much completely lose control of the interview, and, and he um, pretty much steamrolls over um, a lot of the questions I ask. It was really a fascinating conversation, and if you're at all interested in stock picking, uh, this is a guy you really want to listen to. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Mario Gabelli. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I know I say this every week that I have a special guest, but this week I have a very special guest. Founder, CEO, Chairman of Gabelli Asset Management, Mario Gabelli, I'll give you a quick version of his background, formed the company in the midst of the bear market in the 1970s, uh, now managing over $45 billion, that's billion with a B in assets, known as an intense researcher into the businesses of the companies whose stock he buys. Mario, also known as Super Mario, buys stocks as if he was purchasing the whole companies. He's recently... Um, gifted the Fordham School of Business, which has since been renamed the Gabelli School of Business at Fordham University. Mario Gabelli, welcome to Bloomberg. Hey, terrific to be here to talk about stocks. Let's talk a little bit about stocks. So your background is that you um, went to the Columbia uh, School of Business. What did, were you doing before uh, you went for your uh, business degree? Well, essentially back in the period of time, the early 60s, you mm -hmm. did not have to take the two or three years of work experience. So college right to So to I business graduated school. from Fordham in June, went to Columbia in September, and obviously uh, had a variety of uh, entrepreneurial gigs, so to speak, for the prior uh, 20 years, starting at the age of five. Oh, what were you doing uh, prior to college? What what sort of work were you doing? Well, it ranged from everything from caddying to uh, shining shoes to picking up crates in supermarkets for recycling purposes to actually working a gig with ABC down at uh, 
uh, 67th Street and Broadway just as they were building Lincoln Center. I mean, there's so many, it's uh, unusual not to be able to remember or to mention them all, including and- some where I was running uh, dances for college students uh, along with two partners uh, back in the 60s. We'd hire the band, the bounces, and the, and the location which the booze was served. Any uh, any finance, any Wall Street prior to business school, or were these just no? All I think random? the uh, I I did take some uh, summer internships. The one with uh, ABC, as I mentioned, was where I would go in using my undergraduate degree in accounting or a, a study of accounting at the time, but also essentially checking off the uh, each television station where a TV ad was placed and whether it was preempted and whether they'd have to get uh, what make make goods. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to that, I think I worked for W.R. Grace for a while down in Wall Street uh, in the accounting department, and that's where I learned about the uh, anchovies disappearing when El Nino came along, and uh, it was kind of fascinating because I was plugging in a lot of numbers. And what happens when El Nino comes along? What what does that mean to uh... the anchovies? Probably go up, uh, disappear, and the price goes up. Ah, so and basically... so if you got a big fleet off Peru or or Chile, uh, you uh, would have a little challenge of finding those poor, those little fishies. And that started a lifetime deep dive research into. Not really. That was just <laughs> that, that was just basically generating cash flow and it uh, to pay my tuition because I didn't want to have any tuition loans, but I did have some coming out of graduate school. So you went to Columbia with a couple of other guests that we've had on the show. Um, Lee Cooperman told us that he used to carpool. Is this true? He would carpool with you, Art Sandberg, back and forth to Columbia. Well, there were four of us. And Mm -hmm. what happened is at the time I was at Columbia, we both and all of us lived up in the West Bronx in Riverdale and by by Van Cortlandt Park. Mm -hmm. There was a subway strike. So we figured out that we should carpool. A very practical solution. Sure. And then when we uh, did that for several years, we then took turns driving. And I'm surprised that both of them are still alive since <laughs> I was the driver many times. And in addition to that, there was always a Fort Fellow. And then we would have uh, Stanley Shopcourt at one time we'd carpool with. And so it was a wonderful bunch of guys that were focused on stocks, loved the markets, had great passion for making money for clients even then. Lee said he learned more in the carpool than he did in class. Well, I can't remember any of that. <laughs> so you had a professor you studied with, Roger Murray, known as um, uh, one of the editors of Graham and Dodd. At, I think he did the fourth or fifth edition of Security Analysis. Let me, let me make it simple. Mm-hmm. Columbia Business School had two professors back in the late 20s, early 30s, Graham and Dodd, and they wrote a book on called Security Analysis. Uh, the... Uh, 1950-ish, Warren Buffett takes the class and writes a story saying, hey, I was a pretty good investor before I got Ben Graham teaching me, and then I became an extraordinarily good investor. After Graham retired, Roger Murray succeeded and took on that program. So when I took uh, security analysis with Roger Murray, Cooperman was there, Sandberg was there. For me, it was the moon, the sun, and the stars. I always wanted to be in the markets, but I didn't know exactly what aspect. And so that was uh, a very important uh, light shedding and uh, changing moment. Formative, that's where you said, I want to go out and research companies and buy stocks and be an investor. Yep. Um, so one of the quotes that you uh, that was attributed to you in that car was, we were all PhDs, poor, hungry, and driven. Explain that. Well, I think it's a little different version. As time goes on, the fish was 22 feet as opposed <laughs> to 22 inches. Uh, what happened was about, uh, I'm going gonna, gonna to cuff numbers, maybe 20 years ago, Rick Pitino was coaching for, in, in quotes, Kentucky, 
He's now at Louisville, obviously. And he had a player, Jamal Mashburn, and he was looking around for a money manager, came up to our office, and he was walking down, and I was introducing to analysts, and he looks at me and says, Mario, how do you find these guys or gals? And I said, well, they have to be blah, 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 but they also have a Ph.D. attitude. He looks at me and says, what? I said, poor, hungry, and driven. Then one of the individuals in the office, a woman who went to Wesleyan and then went to Columbia Business School, and her father was a specialist, says, don't ignore the fact that it could also be privileged, hungry, and driven. So Rick, writing a book <laughs> called uh, Success is a Choice, or wrote to Success, put a chapter on there called The PhD Attitude, and that's the dynamic barrier about how we came about with the notion that we love to hire PhDs, poor, hungry, and driven with a passion for the market. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Today, we are speaking with Super Mario, Mario Gabelli, CEO, chairman, and portfolio manager of about 16 different funds at Gamco. You picked quite an auspicious time to launch uh, Gabelli Asset Management. 1976 or so was when you first uh, formed well, your own what, firm. What, what, Is that about right? Uh, yeah, let me give you a little background. I started right out of uh, Columbia. I graduated on a Friday, and on Monday morning, I joined Low Bros. On Friday night, Michael Steinhardt quit. Michael started an extraordinarily successful hedge fund called Steinhardt, Burkos and Fine. Sure. And uh, they gave me his industry. So I became the auto analyst, farm equipment, and conglomerate analyst. Fast forward, I covered the media and entertainment business when nobody wanted to do it, and a bunch of business service companies. Fast forward, I left, joined William D. Witter, mm -hmm. a great research firm, and we were merged into Drexel Berman, not merged, taken over by Drexel. I walk into Tubby Berman, I say, Tubby, you are a great investor, much like Mr. Loeb. However, I'm looking for a smaller firm and I'm gonna start my own. And the reason I picked starting my own, I was in Denver meeting with a guy named Richard Goldstein. Goldstein was one of the founders of Janus. Oh, sure. Bailey, Griffiths, and Goldstein. And he says, Mario, why do you wanna to go to work for someone else? Start your own firm. And at the time, I knew I could make money in the market. I had been very successful in picking stocks within the context of the areas in which I had accumulated and compounded knowledge. That is, what I mentioned, which is entertainment and media, automotive and farm equipment, as well as conglomerates. But I didn't have the Rolodex of collecting assets. And so mm -hmm. I started an institutional research firm and had clients like General Motors paying me cash for my research, as well as uh, the institutions that uh, we had been covering when I was at William D. Witter. So you you launch your own shop. What year was that, 76, 77? Well, the, the first time in which we got approved from the regulators, and it wasn't as bad as it is today because no one was starting a business at the time. Uh, <laughs> so we got started the uh, first week of January of 1977. That's We actually applied for the ability to do that, and uh, no one else wanted to join me. Uh, two other individuals at William D. Witter thought about it for a while, and they would have been called uh, Bramwell, Gabelli, and Hathaway in that, se in that alphabet sequence, but uh, no, we didn't get paid. I think in my first year, I made $5,000. So this was as just doing research, or you really kind of launched a set of hedge funds as well? No, 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 no. In 1977, mm -hmm. we had one business. Mm -hmm. We did research and sold it for commission and or cash to whoever we could figure out anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. However, about three weeks after I started, maybe two weeks after I started, I was going to Toronto, which had previously scheduled meeting to visit a company that ran shock absorbers in Canada. Mm -hmm. And Barry liked this one. The guy, his name is Jack Vanderhoot, public company, 
Jack and I chatted. He t- I tell him what I'm there. I'm learning all about the shock absorber business, getting an update on, on Merriman, Monroe, competitive dynamics, other companies that are doing it. And then he says to me, Mario, tell me what your business is. I said, blah, blah, blah. He says, he looks at me, he says, Mario will never succeed. I said, Jack, <laughs> I'm very good at picking stocks and making money. So Jack says to me, I know because I've made money off your ideas over the years. Opens a drawer, hands me a check, and gives me my first client of $100,000 to manage. Just like that. And he said to me, the reason you're going to fail, you forgot to ask for the order. Huh. Oh, always be closing, huh? Is that the, uh, that the advice? Any event, he said, follow the 11th commandment. If you don't ask, you don't get. Notwithstanding that, within that framework, uh, we then decided that we also started managing money. So the initial structure was that set along, up? Along only separately managed accounts, mm-hmm. charging a 1% fee up to a certain break point. Mm-hmm. And today we have 2,000 separately managed, customized accounts, tax sensitive for those that are tax sensitive, mm-hmm. institutional, corporate, and that's about $20 billion, all, law, all equities in terms of uh, what we are, a portion of what we're managing. So when did the mutual funds come along? Well, the hedge fund started earlier, in mm-hmm. the early 80s. We started a hedge fund primarily in arbitrage. We actually have written a book on that subject. There have only been three or four written on the subject. The first one was written by Guy Weiser Pratt when he was taking his uh, studies at NYU. And it really unclothed a really closely guarded aspect of how firms made money with prop money on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And uh, then uh, somewhere in the mid-'80s, somebody else wrote a book on it. And uh, then we wrote a book on it. And uh, bottom line... Um, that was our first hedge fund. It's still a very important part of our business. We manage a billion dollars in a hedge fund of arbitrage. That is company A announces company mm-hmm. buying company B. And at what point do you buy it and what are the risks? It's called risk arbitrage. The second uh, part was that uh, I was on Barron's. Starting on about 1978 or 79 or 80, I got a call from uh, Alan Abelson said, Mario, come by. And For the round table. No, he called me for a different subject. I mm-hmm. had known Alan. I would send him copies of my research, but somewhere around 1977, 78, or 79, I wrote a report on Chris Craft, Herb Siegel's company, and- uh, The I, boat manufacturer and well, a number the, of other things. Well, he was not, a, well, bottom line, he was in the broadcast business. He also had perhaps some other businesses. He was trying to do things like go after Piper Aircraft, and he's a really great entrepreneur. Bottom line- I write to Alan, and I say, Alan, I'm enclosing a report I wrote on Chris Craft for three reasons. One, I like this, the stock. Secondly, my clients are long, so <laughs> I want you to publish it. And third, I understand that if you do publish it, I get 50 bucks and I need the money. <laughs> so Alan invites- You said that, that blunt, just right out. And he, he was receptive to that. Alan is Alan. Okay. And it was Alan. Alan's one of the great- writers of all time Absolutely. in the financial world. But anybody invites me over, and that's how I got into the Barrett's Roundtable. And I'm the longest living member of that Roundtable. Uh, I've been on it for about 30-odd years. Thirty Over 35 years. Yeah, whatever. You... I don't remember the math. It, it could be 35 years. So starting in 1990, you began exploring companies that were headquartered overseas. There weren't a whole lot of people who uh, either had boots on the ground. Well, you know, that's a great point. But uh, in 1981, two or three, I was involved with the auto analyst of New York, and we had a trip to uh, Tokyo and uh, Japan. Uh, Tokyo and uh, China, uh, in part through uh, Henry Kissinger, Walter Kissinger's brother, who ran a company in Long Island called Allen 
But prior to that, in the mid-70s, we organized, as part of my institutional research, a trip to see Ford Motor Company in Valencia, as well as Ford Motor Company and uh, several companies in, in, uh, in Europe. So we had been following companies, but not necessarily recommending them. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. I'm here with Mario Gabelli, Master Stock Picker, Portfolio Manager, uh, CEO and Chairman of Gamco, Gabelli Asset Management. Let's talk a little bit about you as an investor. You come out of Columbia, which is known for generating all these fantastic value investors, but you're not quite the usual mold. How do you describe yourself as an investor? Well, what we did was security analysis, which mm -hmm. means in my terminology, you gather the data. You read the public company data in a given industry. You develop a core competency in that industry. You array the data based on the way we like to look at it. And then you project it, and then you interpret it, and then we communicate it. So we call it GAPIC. So we take an industry like automotive. We cover companies that are either distributors of parts, like O'Reilly's and uh, Genuine Parts or AutoZone. We do uh, car dealerships. We do original equipment manufacturers. We do the car companies, and we do a global today. But at that time, Barry, it was not very complicated. What is a company worth? How do you value the business. And so we looked at it from the point of view of what would you pay for the business if you can buy 100%. So if the company was public, again, this is the late 70s. Mm -hmm. If the company was public, what would you pay to own 100% of it? And so you, who, treat, you treated stocks as if they were businesses, not as if they were just little pieces of paper representing a they, small ownership stake. Well, they were not soybeans and they were not commodities that you could trade like an ETF. Mm -hmm. So it was not mindless investing. It was basically understanding an industry, understanding a company, dealing with all the public information, see, going to trade shows, going to uh, meet the companies. I mean, I used to spend a lot of time in Detroit, uh, you know, in all, all of the environments uh, that one would go to, uh, uh, go to see a company in, uh, I think it was Romulus in... Uh, uh, Kelsey Hayes and the Trier business and so on. And you go to down to Monroe, Michigan, and then you'd go to uh, uh, Dayton, Ohio, and then you would go to uh, Toledo, and you'd see all these companies, and you'd do it three or four times a year. Mm -hmm. And you'd read everything, and then you would start giving speeches. And so you would learn about the details, and you start anticipating how managements would think. What if there was an oil crisis? What if there was a st car strike? What if the price of steel went up? What if... Mm -hmm. and, and so you would then say, but who is going to buy the business? So again, you started the conversation by saying this was a murky world of the mid-70s when you could buy stocks at three times EBITDA, mm -hmm. but interest rates at that time, Barry, a 10-year govy was uh, 10%. Right. In fact, in August of 1981, you, had, you could get 15%, 14 and 7 eighths for a 10-year government today is 2.10%. Tax-free, risk-free. Well, there was a tax-free. It was a government bond. Oh, way back not then. A, not a muni. But mm -hmm. uh, the munis, I assume, uh, were lockstep. I mean, uh, right. uh, but any of it. So we said, look, let's figure out who, again, back in the 60s when I was at Low Broads, you did bootstrap financing. You'd go out and you figure out what was the receivables worth, 90 mm -hmm. cents on a dollar. you figure it out. What was inventory worth? 50 cents on a dollar. What was property, plant, and equipment worth at the gavel? So you would string together a company and then figure out how to assemble the financing. Then in the uh, 70s or 80s, it came along Henry Kravis and so on, and they did leverage buyouts. And then today it's private equity. But at the time, we said, let's assume I'm a wealthy family. What would I pay to buy this business? Mm -hmm. Why would I want to own it? 
And then I would ask myself, what would a strategic, that is a company, what would they pay because they would get some synergies? So we developed a phrase called the private market value. So this was in the mid-70s, late 70s. What was the value of a business that was publicly trading if I could buy the whole thing? Mm -hmm. So it's the intrinsic value, that is the present value of the future stream, plus the takeout premium. And uh, then we said, it's not complicated. We had no tenure with our clients' money. Mm -hmm. And they were very uncertain. So we tried to figure out a time frame in which we would have to hold the stock. So we said, maybe two or three years. So we looked for a catalyst that would surface the value that is the spread between the public price and the private price. And then we try to figure out what was the was the value growing just in case this thing didn't work right away. So you're looking at a number of things, but let me see if I understand the, the key points. First, you're trying to find things that are worth less, uh, that are trading for less than you think the intrinsic value and or takeout value is going to be. Secondly, you're looking for some event, some catalyst, Something that's going to drive or uncover that value yeah, and drive it into the private to the public price. Yeah, very quick learner. And in addition to that, some of the language that's used in the value investing world is called margin of safety. Seth Klarman, et cetera, absolutely. Uh, well, Graham and Dodd, Murray, mm -hmm. and now Greenwald. So he learned well. Uh, Seth is a good, good, good practitioner of that strategy. So, so you, you want to make sure there's enough head overhead value so that if you're wrong. Or as we you used buy, to call you, it early. You got to look at the price of the stock that you're buying, okay? Mm -hmm. You can have all of the same dynamics. If you pay 2X as opposed to X, uh, you know, you're on a 10-foot wall, you can get hurt if it comes down. If you're on a 2-foot wall, yeah, you're you'll, okay. you'll do okay. That's That sounds great. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. We're speaking with Mario Gabelli. He is the founder and chairman of Gabelli Asset Management and portfolio manager for about 16 different funds. Is that about right? Or co-portfolio manager? We, we have our fingerprint on 2,000 separately managed accounts because I help direct those. Then we have a growth team mm -hmm. in our firm, and then we have teams that do specialty products. So I'm involved with the value and all cap value team. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, um, we have an oversight in some of the hedge funds that we run. In addition to that, uh, we do have a fingerprint on some of the mutual funds. So you're pretty busy, to say I, the least. Uh, well, I enjoy it. It's, I like the competitiveness. I like every day I come in, something goes wrong, and I look stupid. I feel stupid, <laughs> and that keeps you up at night. And that's why you get up at four in the morning to figure out what you make, what mistakes did you make today. Right. And there are always going to be mistakes. It's just how you respond to them and how you prevent them from getting out of hand. The Is world changes very quickly. For example, uh, you know, somebody will come along and say, you know, why should uh, any healthcare company be public? They should all be rationed, you know, owned by the state. Somebody can come along and say that uh, the government will go on strike. I mean, there's always something that goes on. And that's not just here, but that's all around the world. Let, let's talk a little bit about your trips overseas. You're you're a um, inveterate traveler. You're not exactly a homebody. How many countries have you been to, kicking the tires and looking at different companies? Wow! Look, I avoided uh, certain countries over the last forty years, uh, fifty years, <laughs> sixty years. Notwithstanding that, we would go to follow industries globally. So a simple example, Barry, is if you drink it, we follow it. Mm -hmm. So I would be in Paris to visit with Pernod. I would go to London to re visit Grand Met, now known as Diageo. I would go down to visit companies that were in the booze business. I'd go to Chicago to visit James Beam. I will go to Japan to visit Suntory, along with the analysts. So we have a team 
that covers beverages, wine, water, beer, soda, and so on. There are certain characteristics about that industry. Uh, the rising middle class around the world, the fact that after the Berlin Wall came down, you had 3 billion new customers. The Chinese and the uh, people in India do drink, and that's good. Uh, and uh, those are beverages that are, have certain pricing characteristics. So the beer industry, for example, we did the craft brewers. I went to see Sam Adams and I'd have to go all the way to Boston. I mean, it was terrible. <laughs> As a Yankee fan, it was a challenge. But notwithstanding that, I like Bob Kraft and uh, the past. And it's a good um, beer. And uh, the stock is up to $240. And, you know, we still have tax clients with $20 tax basis. But the point is we cover industries. So what is going on at any point in time? And if you're traveling to Europe, do you have time? For example, I would go to Milan to see Expo uh, Milan 2015. That is a food expo that deals with food that was by antibiotic, uh, no uh, uh, natural and organic. And so you learn a lot about who's doing what. And we would see a company called Campari, which owns, uh, uh, you the know. Beverages uh, and It owns bourbon. Mm -hmm. Bourbon. This is one of the areas that we like. So that's an example. The other one is simple. Following the movie industry in the late 60s mm -hmm. and following the broadcasters, you follow the cable guys today. So you look at content and distribution globally. So you would follow companies around the world that do that, and you would develop a core competency. And so you'd go around the world. Same thing with vendors to Boeing and Airbus. So let's talk a little bit about the process for selecting a stock. You become an expert. In an industry. In an industry. You and your team. Um, is that that's where the process begins? How do you then take that industry expertise and apply it to specific companies? Well, you know that's a great question. We started following a company, uh, uh, an individual, starting in about the mid 1970s, Dr. John Malone. Mm -hmm. John was in Denver. He actually started in the cable business, AT and T's PhD, and so we would follow everything he's done. So as a result of that, recently, about a year and a half ago, there was a company in London that relocated to Miami called Cable and Wireless. They had, sure. they had operations in the Caribbean. So we were following it. All of a sudden, they decide to buy a company called Columbus, which is privately owned, but, can, but John Malone was on the board and an important owner. So and he, Malone was uh, running Liberty at the time? Oh, he runs, he runs a whole bunch of companies. Right. Uh, he's got his fingerprints on about $125 to $140 billion of assets. He's personally worth about $12 billion. Uh, not that anybody's counting that. Notwithstanding that, he's a money maker for clients. He's constantly coming in to look at scale and structure, look at tax, uh, the way to handle things from a tax basis. And he's a, a, a great financial architect. Independent of that, he understood the content of cable and understand speed and understand video and content. So he was a master chess player in a multidimensional game. Now, independent of that, so go back to cable and wireless. It was on our radar screen because I started following it in the early 90s because they owned uh, a, a, a Hong Kong Telecom. So when I went to Hong Kong to follow the telecom industry, you would then go to London to figure out what cable and wireless is doing, but also understanding what was going on in Hong Kong Telecom. Bottom line, we kept track of it. They spun off the business. They sold it to uh, Vodafone in the UK, and they had this company. They sold it. It is a way to consolidate the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. Latin America and the Caribbean in terms of wireless, cable, old-fashioned POTS, plain old telephone service. Mm -hmm. And John owned a company called Columbus. He merges it into it. So now I have new management that's very good at cable and wireless, located in Miami. And now I'm looking at the whole uh, ecosystem in the Caribbean. Uh, Dennis O'Brien was going to go public, which did you sell? He didn't do it. 
So we watch, we visit with him on that company. Uh, we're watching Millicom, which has lots of fingerprints and footprints in the Caribbean. We go to Stockholm to visit the company that controls it, called Shinovic. So this all starts from being an expert in Absolutely. that industry and then drilling down company And then finding new ideas all the time, and that is the short version of how to do it. So when you're looking at these companies, do you have any favorite metrics, any things that you like or don't like? How do you determine valuation? How do you determine what gives you that little margin of safety or what's... Gee, that's sexy, but it's too well, expensive. Well, you start off with some simple principles. Mm-hmm. What company will do well with their business model in an inflationary environment? In an inflationary environment. And okay. what will that company? How will that company do well in a deflationary environment? Mm-hmm. So, if I can get one that does well in an inflationary environment, as well as doing okay in a deflationary environment, that's a good starting point. Then the second thing you look at is if I sell you a pound of sugar mm-hmm. and I make a dollar, that's one transaction. But I sell you a subscri- a razor blade. I sell you a razor blade at a mm-hmm. dollar. I made a dollar, and I got a gross margin of 50%. But if I sell you a, a subscription to sell you razor blades for the rest of your life and Every you pay month. me a monthly sure. revenues, that has a higher valuation. So we look at not only the accounting. Mm-hmm. We look at the cash. We look at the economics and look at the accounting. And then look at the methodology of predictability and what's the valuation on those. So these are not complicated. They're very simple to do. Let's talk a little bit about the accounting, which has changed so much over the past 20 or 30 years. How has the shift in the FASB rules for things like stock options and what have you, has that made it harder to be a stock picker to actually get to the core numbers lying underneath? uh, No, not really. As you got to understand, I was an accounting major at Fordham. I had uh, 32 credits of accounting and 24 philosophy, so I can tell you uh, a lot about what if a, a tree falls in the woods. And, if an accountant falls in the woods. You can, uh, uh, whether there's a sound or not. Any of it, the, uh, the point is that rules change, but people that implement the rules also don't change. Mm-hmm. Uh, notwithstanding that, uh, you have to be aware of gap accounting. As much as you would like to run a business for cash, economics, and uh, there's a material difference between all of these. So you have to understand the accounting, and uh, obviously that comes into play a lot, uh, and uh, how companies could uh, use the uh, the eraser, the old eraser on the back of a pencil. So you haven't, now, other than talking about John Malone, you really haven't mentioned companies' management. How important is it um, if there's a good business but... You know, yeah, uh, well, that's the old-fashioned story. The, a good business run by a great manager. You know, broadcasting was a great business. Tom Murphy was a fantastic manager, and therefore Cap Cities became a great company. They bought ABC and merged mm-hmm. it into Disney. Okay, and uh, he was very good. He hired a guy named Bob Iger. Uh, Bob sure. Iger's been the head of Disney now for umpteen years, and, uh, you know, the moon and the sun and the stars come together for that company with the right management. And uh, they So it's the, both, the, both the horse and the job. Well, ideal world it would be that. But I, I tend to, uh, you know, I don't know, American Pharaoh run by a different jockey would have still won. Interesting question. Okay. Yeah, fascinating philosophical question. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your research staff. You have a couple of hundred people working for you. How much do you rely on this deep bench that you have? Or are you still, you know, rolling up your sleeves and pouring over uh, spreadsheets every morning? A combination of both. I'd look, we have developed a wonderful team, Chris Morangi, Kevin Dreyer, and the value team, Bob Leiniger, Barbara Morrison, and so on. And we have the, uh, some will like to do large cap, some will do micro cap. So I have a team that does micro cap, Laura Lenehan, Beth Lilly, and so on. They don't have to be in one location anymore. They could be everywhere. 
And as a result of that, they are constantly looking at stocks that we think would fit within the framework of what we uh, match the portfolio. So if you're dealing with a, we have a fund called Mighty Mites, dealing mm-hmm. with companies under uh, ideally $600 million market cap. Mm-hmm. The name came from my uh, family children playing football in the Pop Warner League. They were the midgets, the peewees, and the Mighty That's Mites. Right. So if I picked Peewees, I'd be sued. If I picked Midgets, I'd be sued. But fortunately, I picked Mighty Mites 25 years ago as the brand name. And that's what we do. And they look for ideas. For example, they were just in New Jersey looking at XYZ Company. Uh, And we follow industries in which we like. Uh, The other day, uh, a company called Lance uh, bought a, about three years ago, bought, merged with a company called Schneider's, Schneider's Lance, pretzels, you know, the sure. pretzels, the Schneider's pretzels. And uh, yesterday they announced they're buying Diamond Foods. But it was something that we had thought about that would fit, like, uh, interesting, long a long time. So we've been speaking uh, with Mario Gabelli. He's the chairman and chief investment officer and just about everything else at Gabelli Asset Management. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue the conversation. If you want to learn more about what Mario Gabelli does, it's easy enough to go to gabelli.com and you can look up uh, all of the various funds and their outstanding track records. Be sure and check out my daily column on bloombergview.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to the show. This is the podcast portion, as you've probably figured out. Before I forget, Mario, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I've really been looking forward to having this conversation with you. And, uh, you know, you're, uh, my f- colleagues that you've interviewed in the past say you're terrific, and I can see why they said that. They're, they're all right, and um, I, I, they're both all right, and they are right. That wasn't what I meant, but um, they've all been fantastic interviews. Sandberg and Cooperman were both um, really interesting guys to speak to. Since you brought that up, let me ask you something that um, Cooperman and and uh, Sandberg both alluded to, which was the role of luck, the role of serendipity in both people's careers and in markets. What what are your what are your thoughts on that? Uh, there is no question that you have to step back when you're in, figure out what you want to do. Mm-hmm. What's your passion? Okay, a lot of very smart people in the world. A lot of people want to work from five to nine, not nine to five. So then you got to say, where do I want to spend my life for the next 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years? Mm -hmm. And so that's, uh, for me, it was very simple. I was caddying at Sunnydale Country Club in Westchester County. I would hitchhike up from the Bronx or somehow get up there by public transportation and because I didn't have a, a van that would drove me to uh, pick me up in Yonkers I would stay late and as a sidebar by the way the caddy the pro's name was uh, Whitey Voigt he had two sons West Voigt who became a fabulous singer uh, uh, under the name of Chip Taylor mm-hmm. and a son by the name of John Voigt the actor the actor huh. whose father of who's the father of Angelina Jolie that's right so I used to caddy for him he was he was an assistant pro any event, it went to a great school in Westchester called Stepanak. So, uh, but I was around, and the specialists would come up from the New York Stock Exchange, mm-hmm. and they'd play golf, and I would be able to caddy for them. So I was like 12 or 13 years old, and I figured out this was an interesting gig. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. But I never knew which part of it uh-huh. that I wanted to be in until I went, to, as I mentioned earlier, to be in graduate school and took the security analysis course with Roger Murray. And how did you end up choosing Columbia, just because it was local in New York, or...? 
What led to that? Since we're I have no about... idea how I chose my grammar school. Uh, <laughs> I was well, a PS4 in the Bronx, and then right. I went to a school called St. Joe's on a uh, on a Tremont Avenue? No, oh, okay. Tremont Avenue at 177, right across from Police Station. Mm-hmm. Those are long stories, not necessary. I'm sure they're fascinating, though. They are. So, so let's let's hear some stories from the Bronx. You grew up in the Bronx, by the way. Another Leon Cooperman. We go through the list. List. I'm amazed at how many people in this industry are right here. They're spitting distance from uh, from Wall Street. They're growing up in in Staten Island or Brooklyn or the Bronx, and somehow Wall Street. I give you. Them. I give you an example. Three blocks from where I moved to, uh, up by Evander Childs High School, Ivan Seidenberg. Mm-hmm. Verizon. Literally. Verizon. Four blocks away. So, right. the, you know, a lot of individuals, and there's a long list that you can name. I'll, I'll give you a quick Ivan Seidenberg story. His daughter married my wife's cousin, and it was the Saturday right after September 11th. That was one of the most astonishing weddings of all times, and that's a whole other story. I agree with that. Barry, oh. you got a lot that you can talk about. So, <laughs> But we're here to talk to you, not... Not to have me tell my stories. So let's um, let's talk a little bit about uh, Gamco and a little bit about stock picking and a little bit about your background. So you start out, it's really just you and a couple of guys. And no, now, no, no. When I started out, it was very lonely. It was just you. Bramwell wouldn't join me. Hathaway wouldn't join me because they needed salary. salary. Mm-hmm. I was willing to make 5000 I had two and a half or three and a half kids at the time. And obviously... Nobody from the government came along to say I was going to help you. Mm-hmm. Bottom line, fast forward, we go public in 1999 through Marilyn Smith Barney. So for the last 16 years, we're a public company. So we have a simple uh, ma- a mission statement. Make money for the client, make money for my teammates, make money for the shareholders. That was what we did in 1977. That's what we do today. And uh, So you bet on yourself and it worked out quite well. Uh, no, I, I. but the underlying premise was that the methodology of gathering, arraying, projecting, interpreting data under the Murray Greenwald, mm-hmm. Graham and Dodd, Murray Greenwald methodology of security analysis made sense for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. Okay, this started in 1934. It's now 2015. It's good for another 80 or 90 years. It's, this, it's basically buying at a business at a discount and what business do you want to buy from what it's worth. And uh, every day you come in, whether you were looking at Pfizer buying Allergan this morning or announcing they're trying to put their arms around it or whether somebody's going to buy Starwoods, what are they willing to pay? Why, when and why are they willing to pay it? What are the elements that go into that parfait? Why does a private equity firm willing to pay for a business? Why do stocks sometimes go up sharply when somebody announces they want to buy them? What are, what's the rationale for that? And you've been quite successful at identifying these companies before the big increase in value. So- let me shift gears a little bit on you and say, so you started out, it was you. Now the firm has over 200 employees. Well, What's, we call them teammates. Teammates. You have 232 teammates. What is that transition like? Granted, it was over a period of time, but how different is it from being a running a portfolio, running a small shop, to running a Large public well, corporation. First of all, we're not a large corporation. Okay, we're, a we're, modest size. Like, no, no, no. Come on. We're a, uh, what they call in the Wall Street. It's a small cap stock. It's a small cap company. We live by our ability to earn a return for our clients, which are our most important. And every day we come in and want to be focused on that. That is the driving dynamic. Uh, nothing else is important. And we expect our teammates to have the same passion. 
and some of them don't have it all the time. So if you're in quotes on vacation and something happens in your stock, you got to be available. I mean, you know, you got no choice. And so mm -hmm. we have trained a lot of individuals that way. And I've been very fortunate. We have a team of really highly skilled individuals that were analysts and now are managing money. And they are, we announced that uh, we have Kevin Dreyer and uh, Chris Morangi running as co-chief investment officer of the value side. Howard Ward has a team doing growth, international growth, global growth. And then we have a great arbitrage team and we have great individuals doing a lot of different things. So your role within the company, how has that morphed over the years? Do you find yourself- I spend 50% of, 40 years ago, I'd, uh, when I first started Low Bros, I'd spend 50% of my time gathering data and understanding research and 50% communicating and either visiting clients. Okay, today I spend 50% of my time doing research talking to analysts, listening to conference. I was on a conference calls today. These earnings season is mm -hmm. very rich in content. For example, today at 11 o'clock, O'Reilly's was having a presentation. Somebody else was having one at 10. Somebody else was having one at 9. So I get the transcripts when I can't listen to them and read them at night. So you learn a lot. Cheesecake Factory, fantastic insights into the business. If you read the details and ponder over them and pull them apart, you know the company for the last 20 years. They started with 75 million. In fact, I was at the opening of one of their locations in Malibu or somewhere, uh, Marina del Rey or somewhere in California about, uh, I hate to say this, maybe 25 years ago. So you keep following that company and uh, things change. And uh, meanwhile, they've taken the cash flow. They've taken the shares outstanding from 75 million to 48 million. So you owning 2,000 shares you own a bigger piece of the company today, mm -hmm. and the company's still doing quite well, even in an environment which people, in quotes, are calorie conscious. There's always uh, the menu changes and the people are changing, as long as they're good at what they're doing. And they have skin in the game because they own a big piece of the company. Hmm. Quite fascinating. Um, let's keep working down this list of, uh, uh, of questions. So on the site, on the Gabelli site, it says that you are manager or co-manager of 16 different funds. Are you the the direct manager of that, or are you really coordinating the team? How do you handle uh, all so of the above? And uh, let's take one of our closed end funds, which we started in two thousand and three. I've got Barbara Morrison, Bob Leiniger, I got uh, uh, Chris Morangi, Kevin Dreyer, Jeff Jonas. Each of us manage a piece of it, knowing full well that we each complement each other where our core competencies are. Mm -hmm. So one fellow would have a significant competency in the, in the financial services industry. One other one would have a ter terrific competency of accumulated knowledge that he's and compounded knowledge in the healthcare area. So we blend that together. Mm -hmm. Much so, much the way uh, you know uh, uh, you'd get a five star French restaurant, a three star like per se. So someone's doing the um, desserts, someone else is doing the main courses. You have associated. Oh, you could have thing. something. You could have something on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But it's, the key is to blend it together. So you walked us through the process of how you identify a stock, starting with an industry and then drilling down. What goes into the sell decision? How do you decide? Well, hey, this company is no longer fit for our portfolio. Well, several elements. First of all, if it gets over five percent of a particular portfolio, we really want to make sure that we examine it. No matter how smart we are and how good the company is, we want a margin of safety in the portfolio. Secondly, we do not want to have, you know, a client with $10 million uh, all in one industry, no matter how good it is. Sure. And so we diversify the industry and so on. And uh, uh, and maybe we'll have anywhere from uh, 10 names representing 30% of the portfolio. And if it's a taxable client, we try to make sure we are out of style 
is a very important one, and that is that our turnover is probably 6%. A year, 6% a year. That means you're holding companies on average 16 years. Mm -hmm. So within the framework of buying something, we're already looking for our exit strategy. So why are we buying XYZ company today at $84 with 62 million shares? Five billion market cap. They're gonna do 500 million of EBITDA for the year that started October 1st. What is the value of that business? And why was this company spun off mm -hmm. from another company? What were they thinking of? Why were they, were they preparing the company so that it would be tax efficiently bought by someone else? And you see that all the time, whether it was Zoeta spun off from Pfizer, whether it is XYZ spun off from XYZ, and so on. So we're constantly asking those kinds of questions analytically. So you talk a lot about very, very specific bottoms up with different companies. How important is the overall, here's where the economy is, here's what the market valuation is, and here's what's going on in the world of macroeconomics. Do, is any of that significant, or do you really just focus on the industry and the individual stock? Well, to the degree that inflation accelerates from 1% to 4% over the next 10 years because of rising wages, um, that is important to understand the implications on a comp industry or company from the impact of higher inflation. For example, if I said to you tomorrow, what you and I would shop for, let's say a basket, a shopping basket, mm -hmm. everything constant, the same number of cereal boxes, same number of yogurt, same number of milk, same number of orange juice, coffee, and so on, same mix. If next year that basket would be 5% higher, that would be very positive for those that distribute those products mm -hmm. because they are working on very low margins and uh, you would leverage the SG&A with a rising constant unit count but higher revenues per unit. That's very positive. Take a company like Genuine Parts, located in Atlanta, Georgia. I've been following the company only for 45 years. Mm -hmm. They sell parts under the Napa brand. Oh, if sure. inflation picks up, First, there's 250 million cars on the road. There, each year, this year we'll sell 17 million. We'll scrap 12 or 13. That means we're adding 4 million cars. That's 1.5%. What's the average age of the car? How long are they driven? Does the consumer want to repair cars? Where do they repair it? Where do they buy parts? And all of those elements. And then what happens to that breadbasket of auto parts? Is there inflation? There hasn't been inflation in that for two or three years. Mm -hmm. The company's done extraordinarily well because miles driven are up. They, you start off asking about gasoline prices. The fleet age is way up there also. Yeah, it could be. But that's an important element, but the cars last a lot longer. I can, Today, uh, you for know, sure. Uh, you know, I can drive a car now for 150,000 miles, and uh, it's like driving one for 40,000 miles in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the way, gasoline in 1962, I, I saw a photograph the other day, 32 cents. So mm -hmm. I was getting 10 miles on a gallon. It was 3 cents a gallon. Today I get... I bought some the other day in New Jersey for $1.80, wow. and I get 25 miles on a gallon, and we're paying $0.07. Cents. So you're paying twice what you did 40 years ago. And that is the sad part about not raising the gasoline tax to fund our highways because the infrastructure is terrible. You're preaching to the choir. Roads, I, bridges, tunnels, and so on. I, I've been writing about that and screaming about that. $0.18.4 cents since 1993 hasn't gone up in, what is that? That's the federal tax. The federal tax. Jersey doesn't even have state taxes. That's why they're so cheap or almost 
no gas taxes. Whatever it is, the point is that we need to cover our infrastructure. It uh, increases productivity, whether it's in avionics, whether it's bridges, whether it's roads, whether it is cybersecurity. We need better infrastructure. Somebody's got to fund it and somebody's got to pay for it. The, the electrical grid in the United States is absolutely vulnerable, not just to physical attack, but to cyber attack. We can lose large swaths of electricity. I'm glad you're thinking about things at night. It's that. It's the. By the way, post 9/11, we've done almost nothing to really secure our. It ports. sounds like an individual that wants to have solar power on his roof so that he could be independent and off the grid if he had to be. I I live in an area that's so wooded I can't. Um, you got. I, I have these giant old growth trees that I can't cut down. You can axe part of them. I could, I, could, I could actually put it on a tower enough, above the trees. Uh, enough. <laughs> uh, so any of it, independent of all of that, the point is that there are elements that we look at that, have, uh, that tie into the stocks we do. And going back to the question, which I did not answer, our exit strategy, is aside from client-specific, mm -hmm. is also baked into why we're buying a company because we think it's going to be subject to some form of financial engineering. So and at some, a certain point, it hits a certain – either it's taken out or it hits a certain dollar amount, and that's what triggers the sell? Uh, no, a certain dollar amount as a percentage of a client's portfolio. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, I've owned Genuine Parts now for 40 years, mm -hmm. even before I was managing money. We still own it. We own Berkshire Hathaway since we started mutual funds in 1987. We still own it. Uh, we uh, So, you know, there are certain companies like think General Mills, Campbell Soup. General Mills' business model has morphed and changed, and they are doing quite well over. And yogurt is a ninety-four billion dollar industry globally, twelve billion in the United States, and they are uh, doing quite well at YoPlate. They now have the global brand, and that's very good for quick, easy snacking, uh, quick, easy grab and go, and it is also perceived to be a healthy product. So, so how do you decide to to say, uh, you know, for whatever reason, this one company isn't working out? What goes into the decision to say, we're going to cut this one loose? Uh, essentially, if the company leverages it up because the CEO, she decides to get married again and uh, wants to impress her new husband that she wants to be bigger and makes an acquisition that materially overpays, then we would seriously have some issues. So that's that's a factor to get yeah, a that we've saw bad that acquisition. A, a, what about just pure valuation? At a certain point, you say, "Hey, this is trading at twenty five times. Am I? Are you going to hold on to that?" Or it depends on how we look at the world for the company over the next ten years. How will will this company do with its business model? What are the risks to it? So we're having those conversations all the time about stock specifics. That's a much more sophisticated answer than ah, this is expensive. I'm punting it. You're really saying. This is a very complex picture with a lot of moving parts, and there is no one single metric that's going to make us say. We're, uh, Barry, make your life simple. We're <laughs> overworked and we're overpaid, and we intend to stay that way. <laughs> overworked and over. Well, let's talk about that. You, you, um, there was a, a somebody. I think it was over the summer uh, that had looked at the highest paid people in finance, and I think you were number one or two on that list. And um, uh, uh, this goes to show you the tunnel vision of whoever that was. Mm -hmm. So here you are. You're the founder of a company. You're running 16 portfolios, and they're saying uh, you're overpaid. What What's the pushback to that sort of myopic well, analysis? Well, I, 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 first of all, I, anybody can say anything they want. God bless America. I really like the notion of the uh, French Charlie Libido approach to Je suis Charlie. Right. The, the notion of the free market. And uh, it's very important to have that kind of pushback and don't worry about being politically correct. Notwithstanding that, you got to get your facts right. Mm -hmm. 
So you mentioned two colleagues. What, who am I competing with? Mm -hmm. Is it the hedge fund guys? And where are they in the list of earning returns? Secondly, within the framework of what we do, we are a public company, and to compare a, a W-2, an individual that did not start a firm, mm -hmm. did not make $5,000 when he earned started in a firm, and took all of the entrepreneurial risk, mm -hmm. this is a, a slight difference. I just saw the movie Steve Jobs, okay, and the, and, and the risk that that individual took. Uh, so one has to kind of weigh that. No matter how you look at it, uh, I enjoy uh, being competitive. I like the pressure. But I also like giving back. So you started off the conversation, but I've given significant amounts of money to Columbia, uh, Boston College, Roger Williams, University of Miami, University of Nevada. Fordham? Reno, what about Fordham? Uh, Fordham, uh, Fordham Prep, uh, schools everywhere uh, that we have fingerprints on, ranging for even uh, schools on the West Coast. So, And I'm sure this will create more conversation about more schools that are in need. So, so your basic response to, and I don't remember the name of the company. It doesn't matter. This, it's irrelevant. But the your response is, is, hey, I, I earn a competitive salary versus, so you have a foot in the hedge fund world, a foot in the separately managed accounts world, and a foot in your three-feeted. Uh, with in the mutual fund world, you're running all these different. Sounds businesses. like a horse with four feet. Uh, well, we need a fourth, and then the fourth is the research world. So there's the four-footed horse that is Mario Gabelli, and you're saying what I earn is competitive with no, other people uh, look, in, in this be, industry. Let's be realistic. We have a challenge in this country mm -hmm. to look. My father, I found out, was a charter member of Local Six in New York. Mm -hmm. That's a restaurant or hotel workers. And, uh, you know, we need to raise wages. We need to have everyone have that vision of success and uh, allow them to earn a, a fair rate of return. So we have to deal with that. Notwithstanding that, my tax rate is probably close to 40% cash. Okay. So you're, uh, you're kicking back both through philanthropy and through Uncle Sam. One of them, and maybe both, are very inefficient ways for the money to be spent. But it is what it is. So, all right, so let, let's stick with um, the discussion of, of stock picking. I love the fact that you don't shrink from any question. It's like, bring it on, and I'll take a swat at it. That's, uh, there are some people like, next question. You, you're not that sort of guy. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question. Um, I got pages and pages of this, of this stuff. So we, um, we've been talking about individual stocks, but we never really got to the question of market valuation and what happens when the market is pricey. Does that really, other than the inflation question, does that really? We try to be 100% invested all the time. Mm -hmm. And within the framework of our client accounts, we are also very conscious that if XYZ individual gives us 100% of their assets, we're not going to put it 100% in equities all the time. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the coin, if you're a $2 billion uh, pension plan, defined benefits or defined contributions, and you give us $100 million and you want us to be the best in small cap, we're going to be 100% invested as best as we can all the time. Mm -hmm. And so we're constantly looking for ideas. So we customize 2,000 accounts for each client specific. And I have a wonderful team, both in terms of judgment and in terms of client service that does that. And uh, there are challenges in times like this because we don't fully know all of the clients' tax basis. Uh, they're all at their entire tax picture, so we have to be sensitive about all of that. So if you're- On the, on the other side, uh, the, the question is, you want me to look at how we do this. Mm -hmm. 
So so if you're almost always 100% invested, the assumption is, are you hedging or do you not even bother with the that client, sort of- the, cli- the clients that which we have $20 billion entrusted to us do mm-hmm. not allow us to go short or hedge. Mm-hmm. The way we can hedge is by buying companies like Warren Buffett is buying precision cast parts. Mm-hmm. Let's assume that we own a quarter of a billion dollars worth of that stock, or we own a quarter of a billion dollars worth of O'Reilly's uh, that is not being taken over. Should we sell a little bit of O'Reilly's and put it in because the stock is now selling at, uh, they're going to earn $11 next year, or eleven fifty next year, great business model, great management, and uh, that's 25 times earnings. Should mm-hmm. we take a little bit off the table and put it into precision cast parts where you have very low beta and very low correlation with the market, and you can earn... Four percent annualized. Mm-hmm. It's better than T bills, which is six basis points today. Right, and it's better than you know hedging and, it, and being wrong, if, if the market keeps running. There are certain of those elements, and so we are practitioners of this, and we've been doing it very successfully. We've compounded client assets at about sixteen percent Kega for thirty nine years. Not too shabby. No, but what have you done for me lately, darling? <laughs> you know the Wall Street. But that's the nature of, yes, of, of, of what we do is it's always what was the last month, what was the last quarter. You could have a 10- well, or 20-year run. Yeah, on the other side of the coin, our private wealth management clients are really understand and appreciate it's not what you make, it's what you keep. Mm-hmm. And if you can hold something for 13 months as opposed to 13 minutes, right. you pay you're paying, paying 23.8% tax versus a 43% tax, depending on if, if, if you're living in a great state like Florida. New York has got all sorts of taxes sure. on Sure, they're t- New or York, Texas. Massachusetts, California. Well, Massachusetts is six percent. New York is eight. If you're in New York City, and California is thirteen percent, but there's a you don't have an estate tax. Everyone has everything. There are a lot of pluses and minuses in mm-hmm. every state, to, to say the least. Let, let me shift. And being gears. in New York is a plus to be with you. That's and to be in in the city of which generates so much economic activity. Everybody just steps into the- uh, Have you been to Singapore lately? I have London, not been to Singapore. Uh, London, London, I have been. Tokyo, Hong Kong. Um, uh, there Hong are a lot Kong of places. There are a lot of places. Uh, Dallas, Texas, where I was not too long ago. There are a lot of fantastic places that generate economic activity. We were just in Seattle. That's a town that's on fire. Uh, and San Francisco. Uh, they're sitting on top of something that could be a fire, but that's beside the point. <laughs> Uh, Seattle or San Francisco? Seattle, Which, or both. What, what's going on in Seattle? Nothing. Move along. <laughs> okay. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of your early mentors. Who were the people that were the big influences early on in your career? Well, I must admit I had a professor at Fordham that taught me uh, uh, money and banking. His name was Eamon Kelly. Eamon mm-hmm. was getting his PhD at Columbia, taught at Fordham undergraduate, a finance class. He then became the president of Tulane for 17 years, and mm-hmm. uh, he was very good. So I had a whole bunch of individuals, the guy that taught me Latin mm-hmm. uh, in high school, uh, and uh, you know uh, was a very influential because it taught you how to parse sentences and how to structure sentences. And I uh, had a guy at Low Bros by the name of Eric Rinner, uh, who, uh, and Alan Kirschberg, who would take apart your research reports and really make sure that you had every I and every T dotted grammatically, and that kind of discipline uh, a, that, that was important to c- the idea of communication. Um, let's talk about books. What are some of your favorite nonfiction books, investment or otherwise related? I, I, I read a lot of annual reports. No more books anymore. You at least uh, said the same thing. I, I, my, uh, my wife said, you got to read Steve Jobs. I said, when? So I read trade magazines. Mm-hmm. 
billboard. I've been mm-hmm. doing that for 40 years. I read Ad Age. I read four in the automobile parts business. I read about uh, three or four in the gaming industry. And that's more recent in the last 10 years. I read Asian. There's a magazine that's fantastic. Uh, uh, if you want to understand the, the Asian world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you obviously... Uh, What's the name of that magazine? Uh, the, the, uh, Asian uh, world? Yeah, Nikai uh, uh, owns it. Uh, they, they used to do it... Uh, uh, when I was in Japan uh, 30 years ago, I started reading, and they changed it over to a weekly magazine format. And then there's Bloomberg Business Week. I started reading Business Week back in the 30s or 40, 40s or 50s, but it's changed a lot in the last five years. To say to say the least of that. Um, what other in- investors influenced your your approach? Obviously, Graham and Dodd are... are- Big influences, and it sounds like well, uh, you know, was I, I I like Warren. I go to see his meetings every year for the last ten or twelve years. We, in fact, host a dinner on Friday night. Our firm does, but for the Columbia Business School, it's their their guest list, our nickel, and whatever money they raise, they keep. Mm-hmm. So we do that every year. It's kind of like uh, our pilgrimage to uh, uh, Omaha, Omaha <laughs> every year. That sounds like that's fun. Um, yeah, so thirty five thousand individuals trekking out there. All with a mission and all with an understanding, all with a, a, a way to say thanks to Warren for making them a return. Mm-hmm. And to watch what he does within the context of investing, though, I must admit, precision cast parts was a surprise to me. A little expensive, more than he no, typically pays? No, I, I think the notion, well, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. It's 28 million shares at $235, and the math is uh, 30-odd billion. Uh, if you look at their cash flow over the next seven years, he will have recovered his cash, assuming they'll cost the capital for a moment. It does have zero uh, cost flow mm-hmm. uh, that he would have gotten his money back. And then he'll have a very interesting business for the next 20 years. So uh, he seems to do that pretty well, doesn't he? Uh, he's made mistakes. We, we all, all have. Absolutely. It looks like he's made less than many and, and has put a lot of wood on the ball. Well, when you think about the market valuation of Apple, the, the think about the new upstarts. He, he's missed all the technology because well, he, he doesn't says miss them. He, he has not missed. He them. says he, I don't understand it. I can't invest. Well, in he it. has not missed them. He just doesn't want to play that game. Right. Okay. So the fangs of the world. The tomato. Face, tomato. Fa- Facebook, <laughs> Amazon, Alibaba. Uh, Netflix and though Netflix, but you would have you're been, not afraid of these names, are you? That doesn't mean I'm buying them. But it's something. It's a f- space that you're willing to play in. But don't forget, we do understand the subscription revenue model of a Netflix. Of course, that doesn't mean I pull the trigger, and that means that there are mistakes that we've made that you won't know about, and that is not buying a stock. So you don't you find out you find out about the mistakes you make when you buy something you perhaps shouldn't have. The ones that get away that you don't pull the trigger on, no one really knows about. Yeah, I do. Oh, well, well, now I, we I, all know about Netflix also. But I, I wear my hair shirts. <laughs> There's so many of them, and they come and bother me every day when I think about it, just trying to figure out my... Listen, I bid on Google when they had the uh, reverse Dutch auction, and I got all of uh, several hundred shares. 80 bucks, several hundred shares. You're very that good was, at that. That was a good, that good, was for a good you. deal. Good for you. Um, you remember that. Oh, Painfully, and that's before the split. That's right. That's right, and that's before the rename to Alphabet, which I have been unable to. Well, to it's, figure it's fairly out. easy. They figured out how to not to pay a royalty to get a name that was uh, available, and Alphabet is the new holding company that allows them to do a lot of very creative things. Very clever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, financial engineering. They, they certainly um, seem to to be. So you've been in the business the last ten minutes or so that we have. You've been in this business for forty plus years. What has changed that you think is really significant for the better or the worse? Well, I think that what has to change 
is to make sure that the American public understands that capitalism is a very, very uh, important way of allocating capital. It's a combination that's made America a unique study in the history of mankind. The combination of free markets with all of the flaws, uh, the rule of law with all of its flaws, and meritocracy, which means everybody can be educated. And we got to go back and really help individuals uh, educated. From my point of view, in terms of the markets, you go through cycles. Okay, I was there in the '60s when you had uh, the conglomerates and the nifty push- fifty and the pushback, and then you had the nifty fifty, and then you had the decline of stocks, and then you had the uh, TMTs, and then you had in the '80s the uh, leverage buyouts with uh-uh. Drexel Burnham, and then you had so you go through all these cycles in capitalism, and there's some and flows. What are the challenges today? Are trying to figure out whether this experiment of trying to keep the world afloat by pumping money into the system is an interesting subject that we are going to write a case book on 20 years from now together. How has the actions of the Fed affected what you do professionally? The second question was, let me finish up on the first one. The second thing was the way these products are packaged, starting with John Bogle and this mindless investing. Mm-hmm. And the you no- mean indexing and yeah, just the, passive? And, 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 but also the notion that they're cheaper. In some ways they are, but in some ways there are tax issues that are hidden. Some way there are transaction costs that are hidden. Uh, and uh, then the notion of corporate governance, how do they vote? You know, they're getting better, but they got a long way to go. They mm-hmm. don't pay attention to the vote. Uh, and they are getting better, but... As I said, and in addition to that, there is a constant abuse. If you sit at a trading desk and you see flash trading mm-hmm. and they're constantly probing, what you're trying to do is to scalp you. It was like the specialist on uh, on steroids. Okay. And, Spoofing all those fake oh, quotes. Terrible. And fake- well, they may not have been fake quotes. Well, they're there for a millisecond. You That's really correct. can't and you should. It. They should have them there for a little longer than that. So there's a lot of elements that have to go back into the free market. I don't like dark pools. I want to see everything in a fishbowl of the free mm-hmm. market system because I want the the world to believe that this is a fair game and that it's run by people that have come to work every day to keep it honest and open. And uh, this is a challenge. And uh, we had specialists in the, in, when I was around in the 40s and 50s and 60s. So, you know, everyone has their own approach. Over-the-counter trading, uh, uh, trading of uh, 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 fixed income instruments today, what are the spreads, what are the margins? So there are ways that we can and the SEC is doing a very good job, but they should have committees of people that are practitioners mm-hmm. and meet with them and have somebody organize it and open the, uh, the they, what is going on that we should be thinking about. Mm-hmm. And things, they, that, things that are potentially problematic. That's correct. You guys, you're going to see it before Mary Jo White sees it or any of our staff sees it as a problem. It, it will well, come we're tra- up in your we're, shop we're, we're trained, di- not in our shop, but we train differently. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you look at flash trading, mm-hmm. it's obvious. If you look at the co-location, mm-hmm. how can you do that? You put a server next uh, to the, uh, the, uh, the uh, actual exchange right. servers, and those folks get to sniff out orders. Quicker. Uh, right, so they get, if they want to jump up a, a front, they're they're taking an extra penny or a dime from these big, uh, and, and, big they, and they have great language of call liquidity. We provide mm-hmm. liquidity. We provide liquidity right. providers. This is all kind of uh, nonsense. Uh, well, it's not nonsense, but it certainly can be uh, a pass. You really, practitioners know, and the uptick rule. I mean, there is no advantage of having eliminated the uptick rule except as an accommodation to somebody's packaging products. Mm-hmm. So there's still a lot of things that are going on, and then disclosures. 
how can someone legally they can do it right now and how can they buy derivatives and not file a 13d until a certain time period and in it so in other uh, words they have to re- they have to disclose an uh, yeah, ownership stake in addition to that even uh, if it's not the stock if it's a secondary or derivative yeah, exactly. product and, and do you own it and how do you own it and then on top of that you know if we keep going for example i can buy five percent of a bond mm-hmm. i don't have to file I could buy 20% of a bond and get control of a company. I don't have to file. I own 5% of a company. I have to file. We file over 5% of holdings of a company on a 13D filing within 10 days. And then every time we go over 1% delta, we have to file. We do that religiously on 100-odd companies. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of that, why not do it on the debt world? So transparency, everything in a fishbowl. So so you're looking for people to honor their quotes— to have full disclosures oh, and be transparent. I, well, so you're really kind of an idealist, aren't you? Uh, no, I want the free market system to work because it worked for me. I grew up in the Bronx, mm-hmm. okay? I went to school, and uh, the system allowed me to flourish. And I think it allow, should allow everyone to flourish, and we, can, uh, we want a system that allows everyone to succeed to the highest degree of their interest and their passion and the time they're willing to spend. So you want you want to actually create opportunity for anybody who wants to... Uh, starting with grammar school. And so what do you do to help grammar schools out? We do what we can in terms of taking kids from grammar school to go to high school, give them an edu- uh, pay for their tuition. For a private high school or, or college? Well, or? these are not charter schools. These are uh, primarily religious schools, Catholic schools, uh, because that's the ones that are in our radar screen. So in the last five minutes I have you for, let me ask you two of my favorite questions that I ask all of my guests, and, and let's see um, what you want to do with these. The first question is— Well, you, you said I could say next. You, you can say next. <laughs> Go ahead. I promise you you won't say next to either of these. So if you were dealing with a—you uh, were giving advice to a millennial or someone just graduating college who is interested in a career in finance, what would you say to them? Too late. Too late. They missed their window to get into finance. Yeah. If they basically were a history major, they have to go to graduate school because we don't have the time to train them. Uh, We think they should understand a lot more of the, in quotes, the elements that go into it. It depends. If you were- So someone coming out of college with a a business or economics background and goes to Columbia, gets an MBA, and they graduate- Let me tell you where we recruit from. We have no problem with anyone from Harvard. I'm politically correct, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm the most politically correct guy in the world. I will recruit somebody from Wharton. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and hard. So you'll stoop that low to go No, to... no, no, no. Stoop. By the way, we just had Jeremy Siegel here last week. I understand. Week, so. Jeremy's a good guy. <laughs> we, uh, we look at the best anywhere in the world, and mm-hmm. they are uh, trained individuals the way we want. Notwithstanding that, uh, uh, we will go in, and if you're giving me advice, I'm in high school. Mm-hmm. First of all, we should teach finance and basic uh what makes what and how to save money for the rest of your life and how important is that to create options in your life so if i was giving in a, high school yes hmm. and we there are no mandated courses like that pretty mu- few and far between well i think buffett has put something together to t- uh, in a very light way to uh, help individuals in grammar school understand that the teachers should tell them about the virtues of saving and mm-hmm. uh, uh, individual how to open accounts, not accounts, but the banking system and how that works. But uh, I would say the following, buy a stock. Really? And get into the game. Mm-hmm. Just like you would say, you want to learn how to swim, you ain't going to do it by thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So you buy one stock, I don't care what it is, Madison Square Garden, Apple, 
Cablevision. Whatever. It's Madison too late for that one, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> the... Um, so you own a stock, and what does that teach you as someone right out of high school? Or well, college? you start following it. Mm-hmm. What do I own? Do I own a piece of an American business? What and I read the annual reports and get the annual reports or read it online and do whatever it takes to continue to follow a company. Then, secondly, I would say start saving. And the way you start saving is the following. Though I must admit, you got to not. I would buy one less lottie per day. Mm-hmm. Assuming they're five dollars a day, that's seven days a week is thirty-five dollars. That's seventeen thousand, uh, seven almost two thousand dollars a year. And then figure out how much that would be in forty years, compounding at four, six, and eight, ten percent. And then how you're going to make that. Secondly, give up a beer. That's why I have to go. That one has to be over the age of twenty-one, <clears throat> and uh, one beer per day, and see how much money you would have just from those simple things. And I'm assuming nobody smokes anymore. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the numbers would be staggering. Right, cigarettes are are, are through the roof. You still you walk out of a building, you still occasionally see the junkies out there puffing on cigarettes. Well, there's no question that a, uh, a, 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 a well, you can smell it. You don't have to see it, mm-hmm. and uh, so the building itself is smoke free, but the campus setting or this uh, is not. And you got to give Mayor Mike a really good credit for that. Years ago, the whole subject of healthy living. Though I must admit, sixteen ounces. He once said uh, to somebody. Uh, why the you giant, be, the why, 32 why, ounces of soda. Well, 16 ounces of soda. He says, well, maybe they can have Baker's Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to be careful on all of those dynamics. But, that you know, I don't uh, – look, the advice is simple. Everyone's going to be smart. But you have to work from 5 to 9. Or if you're young, you could do it from 7-11 because you want to watch the Mets games or something like that. Sure. Or the Knicks tonight is going to take a long time. You know, this, the game starts at 8. It's not over until 11. And you got to work afterwards, such as life. Last question. What do you know about investing today that you wish you knew when you began 45 years ago? I actually started buying stocks when I was 13. Mm-hmm. And 45 years ago, I was already working at Low Broads. And so the notion of uh, uh, what I do is fairly simple. I'm buying a good business that I hold for an extended period of time to defer paying a cash tax on the sale of that asset. I would say that uh, if I were picking a career, the individual has to ask himself, how much can I make given the amount of ergs of energy I have to expend in my life, and how do I get the best payback for that erg, and why, in my particular case, I should have started in business a lot sooner. And I should have listened to Michael Steinhardt, who was always saying, why do you want to do anything else? Why don't you just do a hedge fund and go long short? But we're delighted with what we have. I have. Uh, we'll continue to do what I want. I like the pressure. I like the intensity. I like being look stupid every day I come in. Mario Gabelli, this has been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Mario Gabelli. He is the founder, chairman, and CEO of Gabelli Asset Management, publicly traded as GBL. If you enjoy this conversation, look up or down an inch on iTunes and you can see the other uh, 65 or so such conversations we've had. Be sure and check out uh, all the rest of these uh, interviews. Uh, I want to thank my producer, Charlie Vollmer, and my head of research, Mike Batnick, and and Mark uh, Sinistauschi as my engineer. Uh, you've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you? 
and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.